This is Solomon speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20, and these are the words that he pens. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth in his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, All his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. On your outline this morning, you've got five points that deal primarily with verses 10 through 20. Before we get there this morning, and I would encourage you, if you don't have a pen handy, to find one. I think you'll uh, listen better if you take notes this morning. But I want to say just a few words about verses 8 and 9 before we begin talking about money here. Uh, Find there in your Bible, verse 8 again, Solomon says, If you see... In a province, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. Don't be amazed at this. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What in the world is Solomon saying here? Well, let me try in uh, as few words as possible just to kind of summarize verses 8 and 9 for you. In verse 8, Solomon sees he has set his eyes upon corrupt politicians who are taking advantage of the poor. We would today, thousands of years later, say there's nothing new under the sun, right? Solomon sees the corrupt politicians who are taking advantage of the poor. These politicians, they use their position, their authority, and their wealth to feast off of the poor instead of serving their constituency. They weren't concerned about serving the needs of others. They were concerned about trampling over others so that they could accumulate more themselves. We talked about that some weeks back when we talked about that that 
inboard desire to kind of grasp after and climb over, to trample over others uh, so that we can get ahead. Remember, that's when we picked up the game sorry uh, as an example. But Solomon tells us here, it's interesting to note that he says, don't be amazed at this matter. Don't be amazed at this. In other words, though it's not right, and God in no way turns a blind eye, this is to be expected. This is to be expected in a fallen world. Solomon understood enough about the human heart not to expect anything different in a fallen, sinful world that is led by fallen, sinful leaders. Having said that, God has built in a system of checks and balances that we see in verse 8 here. Whatever oppressions and perversions of justice and equity were present in the land in Solomon's day, governors and judges who oppressed the people were not supreme. There was an official hierarchy in which superior watched over superior. So you'd have a governor who had someone above him, who had someone above him, who had someone above him, and then you had the king. Okay, so there was this God-ordained in his wisdom set of checks and balances in leadership. So if justice was subverted by one, it might be recovered by another who was on up above him. That's what verse 8 says. Okay, and then you come to 9. Verse 9 is challenging to translate in the original language here. As a matter of fact, probably uh, as many translations as we have sitting on laps here this morning, uh, you will find a variety of different interpretations to verse 9. I want to talk about two of those just briefly this morning. Verse 9 in the ESV. If you have the ESV, it says this, But this is gain for the land in every way. A king committed to which really means served by, a king committed to or served by cultivated fields. This is gain, this is advantage, this is profit for the land in every way, a king who is committed to or a king who is served by the fields. That's the way the ESV translates verse 9 here. And so if that's the case, if that is a true and correct, if that's the best uh, translation there, then let me speak into that for just a moment here. If justice and righteousness were not found in any of the officials, not even the king himself, there was this reassuring conviction that in the last resort, even the king was servant of the field. In other words, if you had oppression and you had a lack of justice in the hierarchy of leaders, And it got all the way to the king, and even the king subverted justice. Even the king did not do what was right and equitable for the people. Then verse 9, we learn that even the king is dependent upon the wealth and the produce of the land. And so the king could not therefore be unjust with impunity or push his oppressions too far, lest he would decrease his revenue or depopulate his realm. And so what Solomon is saying here is that even the king is connected to the fields. As high as he is, as mighty as he is, as much power and authority as he has, he is still connected to, at the end of the day, the field. And so he's still connected at the end of the day to the hired individual who works the field. You see in verse 9 here, God has joined the head and the feet together. For while the peasant is protected by the king as executioner of the laws, the king himself is dependent upon the peasant. 
as the wealth of the nation is in the fruit of the laborer's toil. And so Solomon says, this, this is advantage, or this is gain to the people in the land. Now, if you have the New American Standard Bible on your lap this morning, you have a little bit different translation. Okay? If you have the NAS on your lap here, we have this translation. Look at your Bible, verse 9, after all. A king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. If this is the best way the text is to be translated, it appears to say that even though corruption and bureaucracy are present, it's better to have organized government at the end of the day than anarchy that ensues with the absence of a king and the political players. While some are the victims of dishonest government, everyone, at least generally speaking, benefits from organized authority. This is good. We see this in the home. Organized authority. Parents and children. Whether the ESV or the NASB translates verse 9 correct, I think the principles of both of these translations are certainly true. Here they are again. The person at the top according to the ESV, is dependent on those who are below him. This is God-ordained checks and balances, as well as the principle that we see in verse 9 in the New American Standard, though government can be corrupt, structures of authority are much better at the end of the day than anarchy. So both, uh, both interpretations give us a truth at the end of the day. It's verses 8 and 9. The issue that Solomon takes up in the rest of our passage is that unjust judges and wealthy lords who oppress or are heavy-handed when it comes to the poor are actually much less satisfied than their fraudulent gains might suppose. There's a problem with all of us this morning. Let's just point to the elephant in the room, okay? The problem is this. The problem is that we oftentimes think about wealth incorrectly. We view wealth incorrectly because we view wealth through sinful, tainted eyes. The lenses through which we see and understand and handle the wealth that belongs to God at the end of the day is oftentimes seen through a humanistic, worldly worldview. Friends, there are always strings attached to wealth. And so Solomon, who was incredibly wealthy himself, is going to deal with some of our common misconceptions as it pertains to money in verses 10 through 20. Are you ready? Buckle up. Here we go. Number one, write this down if you're taking notes, would encourage you, money does not satisfy. This is the overarching principle in verse 10. And I'm going to give you a whole, uh, a whole slew of other principles as we go here. I've given you kind of the five big rocks uh, on your outline. I'll give you several, uh, several others that fit in between those as we navigate the text for this morning. But you need to know that money does not satisfy. Find verse 10 there in your Bible. Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This is vanity. Uh, Solomon, if you're kind of keeping track here with where we've been in our study, has already discussed the futility of wealth. He did that back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And of all people, again, Solomon knew 
But the gathering of riches did not satisfy. He had tried that. He had been there and done that. I would encourage you maybe to go back and check out uh, chapter 2 in your own time this week, uh, but you'll probably remember much of what we said that particular week in our study. Solomon had everything, and what he did not physically possess, he had access to, and he had the funds with which to purchase and acquire. Solomon had everything. And he had tried to find happiness. He had tried to find satisfaction. He had tried to find fulfillment in it. And at the end of the day, he came up empty-handed and empty-hearted. Money doesn't satisfy. Write this down. This is a sub-thought here. The more you have, the more you'll want. The more that you have, the more you want. Again, back to verse 10 there. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. You can have it all, and you won't be satisfied. It's important to notice the twofold repetition of the verb loves in verse 10. You see, money is not the ultimate problem. Rather, love of money is the issue. That's the problem. It's an inordinate affection with money, to money. It's been said that money makes a lousy lover. The more you love it, the less it satisfies. The more you focus on it, the less it delivers. But many people, perhaps some of us in here this morning, treat money as if it were a God. We treat money as if it were a God. We cherish it. We make sacrifices for it. Our minds are filled with thoughts of it. Our lives are controlled and ordered around the getting and guarding of it. It's been said that a person who loves money cannot be satisfied no matter how much of it is in the bank. Do you love money inordinately? You know, a ready companion to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10, our uh, verse under consideration here, is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes this, a familiar text to many of you, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. A snare is a trap, by the way, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people, not just dip them, but plunge them into ruin and to destruction. And here's the word again, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money itself is an inanimate object. It's not the ultimate problem. It's the affection that our heart has for it, oftentimes, that is the problem. We are thirsty creatures. God has made us this way. I was thinking about this in my study this, uh, this week. The psalmist writes things like this. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When, when can I come and appear before God? Psalm 42. Or how about these familiar words? O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have looked upon you or I have beheld you in your sanctuary and seen your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. We're thirsty creatures. God has made us, he has wired us, fashioned us to be thirsty, and it's good. The problem is that we thirst after wrong things. 
We hunger after wrong things. We seek to be satisfied in things that are like a strainer. Think for just a moment here. At least once a week, we have some form of pasta in our house. It's quick, it's easy, it's cheap, takes care of the kids, it's easy to clean up. But you put that pasta in the strainer and you run some some water, or actually when you're done, you pour the water out through the strainer. That strainer is not meant to collect anything other than uh, the pasta. All the water runs right through it. Just like trying to be satisfied in anything other than God alone, we will be left empty-hearted and empty-handed every single time. J.C. Ryle once said this, he said, Let us all be on guard against the love of money. The world is full of it in our days. Concur? I do. This plague is abroad. Thousands who would abhor the idea of worshiping the idol of money, he goes on and says here, are not ashamed to make an idol of gold. We are all liable to the infection from our least to our greatest We may love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. It is an evil that works very deceitfully. It carries us and captivates us before we're ever aware that we're in its chains. Here are a few questions that you can just kind of process in your own heart and mind to help you discern whether or not you may be gripped by a love of money. Consider these. Do thoughts of money consume your day? Do thoughts of money consume your day? How about this one? Do others' successes make you jealous? Do others' successes make you jealous? Do you define success in terms of what you have rather than who you are in Christ? How do you determine your success? Is your family neglected by your pursuit of material things? Do you close your eyes to the genuine needs of others? Are you prepared to borrow yourself into bondage? And then lastly here, does God get your leftovers instead of your first fruits? Just a good few evaluation questions there. To help discern whether our love has an inordinate atta- or our heart has an inordinate attachment to money. To money. Second principle under money doesn't satisfy there is the more you have, the less you're satisfied. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. We said the more you have, the more you want. Well, now the more you have, the less you're satisfied. Look back at verse 10 there. Nor he who loves wealth with his income is not satisfied. He's not satisfied with his income, the one who loves wealth. If anything is worse than the addiction that money brings, it's the emptiness that it leaves. I mean, Solomon has already said that God has created us with eternity in our hearts. And those hearts who were made with eternity in mind need better nourishment than ink on paper. Money will never satisfy. It will never satisfy To the lukewarm church in Sardis, Jesus said this. He said, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't even see it. You can't even realize it. You've been so captivated. 
C.S. Lewis once said, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We would rather sit around and make mud pies because our minds cannot even conceive what an offer of a holiday at the sea is like instead. Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Don't spend your labor on that which does not satisfy. Money does not satisfy. Number two, write this down. Money doesn't solve every problem. Money doesn't solve every problem. Look at verse 11. Solomon says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Money doesn't solve every problem. As a matter of fact, money creates a lot of problems. Here's a sub-thought for you here. The more you have, the more others will come after it. The more you have, the more others will come after it. That's what Solomon says here. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. The more you have, the more new friends you'll also have. Because others will come after it. A person who comes into wealth suddenly discovers that he or she has long-lost relatives and would-be friends that come filing out of the woodwork. Just ask somebody who's won the lottery. I'm not encouraging you to play, by the way just in case that needed to be said. Solomon says this in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 4. He says, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Like a magnet, wealth attracts new friends. Furthermore, people usually can't take, of, take care of all their wealth by themselves. What is sadly ironic is is that as wealth increases, it requires an increase in paid services to take care of that wealth, to distribute that wealth, to protect that wealth. It takes a number of individuals to help manage others' money. Think about bankers and brokers and financial consultants and lawyers and tax consultants and accountants and employers and even bodyguards. The expense of all these services causes the profit margin of the owner to decrease. So the question is, is more better? No. More money, more problems. More money, more problems. The more you have, the more others will come after it. Write this down too. The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. Look back at verse 11 there. Solomon says, And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? We need to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of believing that if we just had a little more money, that would take care of all of life's issues. I mean, let's be honest here for a second. Isn't there a part in all of us, somewhere in our hearts, somewhere in our fallen thinking, that thinks that if we only had enough money to pay all of our bills or to get what we're really longing for, then all of our problems would really just disappear? If I could only have that, fill in the blank. 
I'd be really happy. I'd be really satisfied if I could just have that. And then you get it. And what do you find out? You find out the same lesson that your child found out early in January after Christmas. That all that shiny stuff doesn't quite do the same thing for me as it did the day that I unwrapped it. The more you have, the more you realize it doesn't really do you much good. In truth, having money actually creates many, many problems, in some cases more than it solves. As we get more stuff, there's more things to take care of that will demand more of your time and more of your money. Money doesn't solve every problem, Solomon says. Number three, write this down. Money doesn't bring lasting peace. Money doesn't bring lasting peace. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Here's a sub-thought for you here. The more you have, the more you have to worry about more you have, the more you have to worry about, to be concerned with. The picture here is, a, is of a rich man who is sleepless, not because of overwork or because of strain, but merely as a result of overeating. I mean, it's really a matter of basic physics here. Think with me for a moment here. The greater the mass, the greater the hold that that mass exerts. The more things that we own, the greater their total mass, the more they grip us, setting us in orbit around them. And there finally comes a point where, like a black hole, they just suck us in. You see, we think we own our possessions, but all too often, our possessions own us. They own us. Every item that we buy or accumulate is one more thing to think about, talk about, clean, repair, rearrange, fret over, or replace when it gets old or goes bad. Jesus captures this concern in the parable of the rich fool. Remember Jesus said, the land of a rich fool produced plentiful. And he, the rich fool, thought to himself... What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store all my crops? But here's, here's a guy who was wealthy, and he had lots of crops, but he's concerned with, what shall I do with all I have? What shall I do with it all? The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Matthew Henry once said, there is a burden of care in getting riches, fear of keeping them, temptation in using them, guilt in abusing them, sorrow in losing them, and a burden of account to at last be given concerning them. That's weighty. That's weighty. Solomon tells us that there is no guarantee that possessing wealth will calm our nerves or ensure sound sleep. As a matter of fact, just the opposite is said to be true. Solomon observed that the person who works hard and only has basic necessities actually sleeps well no matter how much he or she has. But the rich man or the rich woman, on the other hand, 
is actually more restless because he or she has eaten too much. You see, the rich person is wound up tighter than an eight-day clock, and they can't unwind. They can't unwind. So much just coursing through them. How am I going to take care of it? How am I going to protect it? Where am I going to put it? Oh, that's broken. I've got to fix it. So much care and concern. The accumulation of stuff doesn't bring peace. It actually brings more anxiety. The wealthy are always afraid of losing what is theirs. The poor man is content with what little he has. Solomon says this is borne out in our sleep patterns. You know the primary reason that people in our culture can't sleep is tension. And the primary cause of tension is worry over money. Worry over money. Care and concern. What's the stock market doing? How's the economy affecting sales? What's going to happen with my 401k? What happens if I lose my job? Henry Ford once said, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. Interesting thought. I was actually happier when I was turning the wrench. Money doesn't bring lasting peace. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Number four, write this down. Money doesn't provide ultimate security. Money doesn't provide ultimate security. Look at verses uh, 13 through 17. We get a, a, a chunk here in the text. Solomon says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. What is it, Solomon? Well, he tells us. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he, this person, is actually the father of a son, but now he has nothing in his hand. He's got nothing to give or to leave to his son. No inheritance left. It's all been squandered. As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil." that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, Solomon says. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and in anger. We tend to trust in our riches. And the words that we use to speak about them oftentimes prove this. America's national retirement plan is called social what? Security. We call our investments securities and trusts as if we can trust them for a secure future. We make money a God again in many ways. As a matter of fact, uh, individuals oftentimes refer to money as the almighty what? The almighty dollar. And we deify it. Verses 13 through 17 are the story of a rich man who tried to hoard his wealth, but as the result of some sketchy investments, we don't know what they are, he lost all that he had. And so now he's right back where he started from, but now he has no estate to leave to his son. And not only that, but he spends the rest of his days in darkness, discouragement, defeat. He did not have an enjoyable life. Here are a few subpoints. here. I said money doesn't provide ultimate security. Well, I jot this down. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Look at verse 13. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. You see, when we love money, we bring upon ourselves all kinds of unnecessary hurts. 
that are the inherited consequences of the sin of loving money. Things like grief and guilt and dissatisfaction and remorse and lack of fulfillment or worry, disregard, despair. I mean, these are some of just the many wounds that are caused by the sword of the love of money. Likewise, riches hurt us by making us proud or making us too secure or causing us to fall in love with the world. You see, money has a propensity to draw our hearts away from God. And the Riches actually, Jesus said, make it difficult to enter into the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, some are even shut out on account of cherished riches. Think back to the rich fool. Jesus said, this very night your soul will be demanded of you. And you've loved the wrong thing. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Jot this down, the more you have, the more you have to lose. Look at verse 14 there. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he, this gentleman, is a father of a son, and he has nothing left in his hand now. He's got no no inheritance to leave to his son. The more you have, the more you have to lose. In Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, Solomon says this. He says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth, Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. Like, Havel, right? Vanity. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. Humor me for just a minute here. Fellas, reach into your back pocket and grab your wallet. Ladies, if you've got your purse near you, just grab your wallet for a second. And I want you to find a dollar bill. Mamas, daddies, if you've got your kiddos sitting around you, make sure your kiddos can see this. Just find a $1 bill. Louis got his back there. Louis, why don't you start the line? You can just bring them all to me. <laughs> Kidding. Turn that bill over and look at the back of it. What critter do you see on the back of that bill? You see an eagle, right? You see an eagle. The picture of an eagle with his wings stretched out there. Well, friends, let me just remind you that that picture is as ironic as it is biblical. And you just need to be reminded that that dollar bill will fly right out of your pocket. And so will the next one and the next hundred, and the next thousand. That bill will fly right out of your pocket and right out of mine. And Solomon tells us why at the end of Proverbs 23. He says, For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. So every time you open your wallet and you pull out a dollar bill, there's just a reminder there for you not to trust it. It will fly away. It'll fly away. When Jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not just because wealth might be lost, it's because wealth will always be lost. Wealth will always be lost. Either it leaves while we are alive, just like this father, 
in a sketchy investment who has nothing to give to his son now, or it will certainly leave when we die. There are no exceptions. And so realizing that, that wealth's value is temporary should radically affect our investment strategy. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong, it's just plain foolish. Just like the eagle's wings, it'll fly away. It'll fly away. I said, the more you have, the more you have to lose. Write this down. The more you have, the more you'll leave behind. The more you have, the more you'll leave behind. Look at verse 15. Solomon says, as he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go. Again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. The psalmist said this in Psalm 49, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away, and his glory will not go down after him. John D. Rockefeller, perhaps one of the wealthiest men who has ever lived, there's a story that's told about old Johnny D. And the story is told that after he died, someone asked his accountant, how much did John D. leave? Well, the reply was classic. He left it all. He left it all. We will leave everything behind. Martin Luther once said, I have held in my hand many things, and I have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Friends, don't, don't trade don't trade heavenly treasure for earthly trinkets. I mean, just take a look around you for a moment here. Every object that you see, except for the souls of men and women, won't last. It's temporary. Everything you see, every car in the parking lot, the balance of every bank account, the house in which we reside, the stuff that we have accumulated, Jot this down. The more you have, the more pitiful you'll be. The more you have, the more pitiful you'll be. Look at verses 16 and 17. Solomon says, This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is pitiful. Solomon reminds us that despite all of our work and wealth, we're going to die. We studied that in earlier chapters of Ecclesiastes, right? Newsflash, you're going to die. We do all kinds of things to entertain that thought away from us, but that is the reality at the end of the day, and no one has ever lived to prove it wrong. To make matters worse, if we're obsessed with wealth in this life, true happiness will evade us. The 19th century American industrialist Andrew Carnegie once said, Millionaires seldom smile. Millionaires seldom smile. Money can't console you in loneliness or illness or hardship. Solomon says, The more you have, the darker the cloud will be that hangs over your life. When we don't have it, we don't believe that's true, right? We think, oh, if I could just have it. If I just had a little more, 
Those would be the glory days. Now Solomon tells us that a dark cloud hangs over. Solomon tells us that it causes wealth, inordinate wealth, and our love of it causes vexation. That's frustration, sickness, and anger. The more you have, the more pitiful you'll be. Lastly this morning, write this down. Work hard, be content with what you have, and enjoy God. Work hard, not as working for men, but working for God. Be content. If I have food and clothing, in these I'll be satisfied. And enjoy God. It's the chief end of man, right? Enjoy God forever. Look at verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. God, let me just pause it there, God assigns everyone a lot in life. And your lot doesn't look like your lot. And your lot doesn't look like your lot. The problem in life is when we begin comparing lots. And it's like, well, God, how come he has a half acre and I only have a third? God, how, it seems like you've blessed him. I, I wish that I could have more. Solomon says, be content with the lot. Play on words here, not physically your yard size, obviously. But be content with the lot that God has assigned to you. Solomon goes on here in conclusion, everyone who... Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. What God has given you, that's the gift of God. Be satisfied and be content in that. Don't squander your life wishing that you had more. And if you have more, give more. It's better to give than it is to receive. And it will help you It'll help you not to be inordinately attached to it. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Solomon has given us kind of this same counsel, the same counsel that he gives us in these concluding verses here, 18 through 20. He's given us this same counsel three times already. He gave it to us back in chapter 2 and twice in chapter 3, and he'll repeat it at least three more times before he ends this sermon in chapter 12. Enjoy God. Be content with what you have. Work hard. Keep your eyes on things above, not on things of earth. Right? At first glance, it may appear that these concluding verses are the mere praise of simplicity and moderation, but in fact, the key word in these verses is God. That's the key word. You see, the secret of life is to take what comes to us as heaven sent, whether it's toil, wealth, or both. Be content in your lot. If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy will become very exciting. Let me just rewind that statement. If you don't see the greatness and the goodness of God, then you and I will be enthralled with all the things that money can buy. We'll be excited about all the things that money can buy. Track with me for a second. If you'd never seen the sun, you'd be impressed with a streetlight. 
If you'd never felt thunder and lightning, you'd be impressed with 4th of July fireworks. Likewise, if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. If it rots, rusts, collects, dies, or dust, finish my sentence. Don't give your life to it. Don't give your life to it. If it rots, rusts, collects dust, or dies, don't give your life to it. Friends, we can't enjoy anything as it was intended until we enjoy God like we were designed. We will skew everything else if we don't enjoy God first as we were designed to do. We'll be enthralled with all the shadows and all the trinkets that are earthbound that no one will take with them. We won't carry anything out. Naked we came and naked we will go. We will carry nothing out of this world. Friends, let me just remind you in conclusion this morning that there are riches far better than the fleeting dollar. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Peter tells us that in Jesus Christ we have an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. These are riches that won't be left behind. And so let me ask you this morning in conclusion, have you received the riches of Christ crucified, risen, ruling, reigning, and soon returning? Do you have these riches that won't spoil, that won't fade, and that don't need anything to protect them. Have you received them? Have you received the grace of forgiveness and pardon of your sin? That is true riches. That's true riches. I mean, friends, apart from Christ, we are lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no hope. But Jesus Christ came. He lived among us, lived a perfect life, was crucified on a Roman cross, dead three days, rose from the grave, is seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven today. And he's calling sinners to repent and to believe. To turn your back on the lowercase almighty dollar and to turn your face on the almighty king. To receive his grace, to receive his mercy, to receive his forgiveness. What can wash away all my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the practical uh, challenges here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Thank you that Solomon, who knew what it was to have great wealth, can help dispel some of the common misconceptions that we all buy into at times. Father, help us to keep money in its correct perspective. Help us to love you as to not be satisfied with lesser things. Money is a paltry substitute for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know Jesus by faith and repentance, that you would draw them in. Father, I pray that they would come to a place where they clearly see their sin and like Isaiah would say, woe is me, I'm unclean. And I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King. When we see you for who you are, it resizes us, it reshapes us, it puts our whole life into its proper context and perspective. We see ourselves as needy, and we see you as the all-sufficient benefactor. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.